Greetings, and welcome to Research on Religion, a weekly podcast series devoted to the social scientific study of religion. I'm Anthony Gill, your host, professor of political science at the University of Washington, and distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, the gracious sponsor of our podcast. We encourage you to visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org to post comments, ask questions, access additional material related to today's program, and to find out what is happening at the Institute. All right, let's begin. This week's guest is Carmel Chiswick, Professor Emerita at the University of Illinois, Chicago, as well as a research professor of economics at the George Washington University. Carmel specializes in labor and economic development, but has also written extensively on other topics, including economic history, immigration, education, and religion. In addition to walking the halls of academia, she has also been employed as an economist at USAID, the United Nations, and the World Bank. She appeared once before on our podcast nearly four years ago discussing the economic history of Jews in America, but today we have her back to discuss her new book, Judaism in Transition, How Economic Choices Shape Religious Tradition. Some of her earlier work on the history of American Judaism can be found in this highly readable book, but it also includes a number of new insights about contemporary Judaism and the possible future of Jews in America. Of course, you can find links to this book, the earlier podcast, and other interesting morsels at our website, www.researchonreligion.org. Please pass this information along to your friends, family, and colleagues because we would appreciate that. And I should also note today uh, we have Rocky J. Barkington, the Research on Religion mascot, firmly ensconced in my big leather reading chair here in the studio. So in case he starts barking halfway through, you will know that that is just our mascot showing great enthusiasm for the show. Carmel, welcome back to Research on Religion after a four-year hiatus. What, what oh, have you... Yeah. It's good to be back. Well, what have you been up to in those four years? Well, I've been writing this book mainly. Uh, I have uh, been uh, working as, with uh, students and faculty at George Washington University. I've uh, been enjoying being in Washington, the seat of our government, uh, so I've been doing a whole bunch of things. Uh, this year, mostly, I'm talking about Judaism in transition. And this week is uh, Easter week. It's pass- We're in the middle of Passover, and this is a time when uh, everybody is enjoying the spring and uh, reflecting on their own religious traditions. And that is what we want to do here, because you have written a wonderful book here, and I should note that I was a discussant on a panel that we usually call in academia Author Meets Critics at the recent Association for the Study of Religion, Economics, and Culture in Boston. But I really wasn't critical of the book, because as I mentioned, this is a really wonderful read. It teaches you a lot about Judaism. And it also teaches you a lot about economics. So it's a one-stop shopping place if you want to understand Judaism a little bit better and economics a little bit better. And the cool thing is that there's not a single equation in the book like those <laughs> Econ 101 textbooks. Uh, so I have to recommend this this book for everyone out there for a number of different reasons. What possessed you to write a book like this, blending Jewish traditions along with economics and in such a highly readable fashion? Well, actually, there was a whole list of things that inspired me because, you know, when something like this happens in your life, you can see everything that you experienced before seems to have fed into it. But I think uh, I was inspired by the economics of religion, which is a new field which has many insights into many different religions, and I realized that not very many people were applying that new field to Judaism. But also, when I read books about Judaism and when I look for a textbook for my undergraduate course, there are lots of books about theology and about religious belief and religious practice, but there was nothing out there that explained what it's like to be a Jew in America. This book, 
uh, does not have theology in it. When you say you can learn about Judaism in it, theology is not what you're going to be learning. What you're going to be learning is how Jews live in America, how they live a Jewish life in America. Um, As an economist, of course, I'm interested in how prices influence behavior, how income sets limits or doesn't set limits. I worry a lot about how we allocate our time because our time budget is always a limit and time is is an important uh, problem for most people. Problem in the sense of how to spend it, not problem in the sense that we have don't don't have enough. Well, I guess we don't have enough time either. But uh, but I wanted people to know something about my experience living a Jewish life in America, and I think that was an important reason for me to write this book. And you mentioned something there that's very important in this book is that your life in America as a Jew, because there are a number of personal stories here. And this is not typical for academics to write themselves into the story. We, we might be there in the background somewhere in our fancy articles, but this one, you rely upon a lot of personal stories to illustrate the various constraints, time constraints, income constraints, et cetera, et cetera, that are peppered throughout the book. Well, I, I find that economics often is a handle on explaining things that I do in my life. And I wanted to communicate some of that feeling to the reader, especially the reader who's not familiar with economics. But I also think that a lot of academic work in applied fields like labor and uh, uh, economic development and history has a lot of the personal life of the author in it. We get our hypotheses out of our personal lives, and we say things, in the, especially in the introduction and conclusions of our journal articles, that are a reflection of our personal lives. And I kept seeing in that part of the academic uh, journal articles, reflections on Judaism that uh, were not the same as what I would have said. Mm-hmm. And I also felt, also have long felt, that these personal attitudes and beliefs that creep into our articles and motivate our articles uh, might well be made more explicit. So one of the reasons I used stories about myself was to be explicit and, and uh, open about the fact that this is my life, this is the way I've led my life, and this is how economics illuminates the way I led my life. I started out from that narrow perspective, but I realized as I looked at the data and I began to look around me and study the Jewish community more, uh, more uh, systematically, that in many ways my life was typical of an American Jew. Uh, I'm not that special when it comes to Jewish matters. So I, I use my own stories for all those reasons. I have to admit that it's a great pedagogical technique, too, because when I do my introduction to political economy classes, the students are thinking about studying things that are far away and distance the World Bank. But what I do is try to ingrain economic behavior in their daily life so that they can sit down and say, hey, yeah, that's me right there. And then they tend to learn it uh, very well. Yes. I should also note one other thing about this book that was uh, very pleasing to me was that this is this is the first book that I've ever seen a bibli- uh, bibliographic reference to Research on Religion podcast. So I want to thank you for that. I, I, I've arrived. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you were looking into the data about Jews in America and also reflecting upon your own life. Let's go ahead and dig into this. And one of the first chapters in the book is you give a general overview of the landscape of Judaism in America. So give us a little bit about a sense of who the Jews are in America, where are they demographically, and um, yeah, so let's let's talk about that. Well, let's first start out by talking about how Jews fit into the American population. Jews, numerically, in terms of the size of the group, are very small. We are less than 2% of the American population. Uh, You wouldn't know it sometimes the way people talk, 
But in fact, numerically, there aren't that many Jews. The Jews are concentrated, however, uh, tend to live in the big cities. So, I mean, we have the stereotype that, you know, all the Jews live in New York and Los Angeles. But uh, New York City really, in, the, in 2000, in the surveys of 2000, about a quarter of America's Jews live in the New York City metropolitan area, and I define that really large to include, um, let's say, the, some of the uh, suburbs. Uh, northeastern New Jersey is another 6%, so a little bit under a third live in that, ca- that corridor. Uh, then there are a number of cities that have important Jewish communities, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, uh, Chicago, uh, and those each have about maybe 3% of America's Jews. So they, they feel important, and they are important, but they are not numerically uh, over, overwhelming. There's a whole bunch of Jews in southeast Florida, uh, but still that's less than 10% of all American Jews. And more than two-thirds, 37%, live in all other cities, that is to say, all over the country, uh, in, usually in small communities, um, sometimes in communities where there are no other Jews, but that's unusual. Um, uh, Jews tend to be educated uh, rather more than the average of, um, of uh, Americans. A very, very, very few Jews have not graduated from high school. That's really unusual. And most Jews are college graduates. Uh, another, let's say, 20 to 30 percent uh, have high degrees, that is to say, degrees beyond the uh, college level, advanced degrees. That's considerably higher than in the general than the statistic for the general population. Um, And that affects the community. It's a community of educated people, and educated people tend to be in professional jobs or technical jobs. Not all Jews are white-collar professionals, but a a substantial majority are. And I would assume Uh, then that the incomes are higher on average as well. Well, when you, certainly when you compare them to the American uh, population writ large, people in high occupations have higher incomes. So, but if you control for education and occupation, it's not clear that Jews earn more than those occupations. Uh, you know, there are some that are very high earning, and but a lot are very low earning, and so I just, just assume the medium for that occupation. Now. Judaism, or when we talk about Jews, that tends to bring up the idea of Judaism, which is a religion. And one of the interesting discussions that we have in the sociology of religion is how religious are religious people. So when it comes to the Jews, where are they standing in terms of their religiosity, attending shul on a weekly basis, or praying, etc., etc.? You can't measure religiosity for Jews the same way you do for Christians. Uh, It has it's been said, and I find it very helpful, that Jews are a people that has its own religion. So if you belong to the Jewish people, how you observe your religion doesn't change the fact that you're Jewish. Uh, that's a plus and a minus. Uh, it means that you have a little bit more flexibility about your behavior without actually denying being you're Jewish, on the other hand, uh, you know, if you don't do something religious, you lose your religion entirely. So, but, but I think a lot of Jews will, if you ask them, will say, oh, I'm not religious, and that doesn't mean that they don't feel Jewish. On the other hand, people who say they're not religious will often observe Jewish holidays, uh, not eat bread on Passover, go to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah in the fall, the Jewish New Year. Uh, and, and there are actually a long list of, of religious observances, you know, lighting Hanukkah candles, uh, that they will do and still say they are not religious. 
So what do you mean by not religious is a little bit different when you're talking about Jews than it is about a faith-based religion. And this is going to factor into our conversation here quite a bit because the subtitle of your book is How Economic Choices Shape Religious Tradition. And you break things down here into great tradition and small tradition. And part of this relates also to another demographic characteristic of Jews which is their immigration. And before we get into the great and small traditions, uh, tell us a little bit about the heritage or ethnic background of Jews in America, where they come from. I know they have a history going back to the 1700s, if not even a little bit earlier, but they more have come in, let's say, the past century or so. Yeah. Well, I think of, of history as layered. I mean, people like, sort of like a missionary book, I guess. The uh, the earliest immigrants to the United States to what is now the United States arrived in New Amsterdam in the 1600s by mistake. They were a group of of Jews from Recife, from Brazil, uh, which had just been changed from Dutch to Portuguese, and in Portugal uh, there was an Inquisition. And the Jews fled the Inquisition, and they were looking for someplace hospitable where there were other Jews, and they got shipwrecked. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember if it was pirates or, or just a storm, but they ended up in Mexico and couldn't land in Mexico because it was Spanish. And so they just took the next ship out, and the next ship out was going to New Amsterdam. And that's how Jews got to New York. <laughs> but <clears throat> so in, in those, in that century and a half, two centuries after that, most of the Jews who came to the United States or what would become the United States were refugees from that Spanish Inquisition. And you were talking about two or three generations removed, but that's who they were. There weren't very many of them. Uh, and they, they formed communities in the East Coast colonial cities, but they were not many. Then in the middle of the 19th century, there was turmoil in Europe associated with the revolutions in the 1840s, and uh, a lot of liberals uh, during that, young men especially, fled Europe for the United States during that period. And what would, then, what would later become Germany was a hotbed of radicalism. And, and radicalism in those days meant you thought democracy was a good idea. So they came to the United States, and among them was a group of Jews, and there were so many Germans who came to the United States at that time that the Jewish Germans, even though they were a small fraction of the total, outnumbered the existing community by a lot. So at that point, American Judaism became... German influenced, and Germany was uh, German Judaism was beginning something that would later become the Reform Movement in, in religious matters. Uh, and in the Reform Movement, one of the big innovations that they had was to have services, synagogue services in the vernacular, which meant not Hebrew, but in this case it meant German. So synagogue services in the United States in the Reform temples became German. At any rate, uh, about 50 years later, 40 years later, we began to see this huge, massive immigration from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. The Italians, Poles, uh, the uh, Russians, and in that group, Jews were numerically very large. So there were some years at the turn of the century when more Jews came than almost any other group, except Italians, uh, from 1880 to uh, 19, well, till World War One, uh, We had this flood of immigration. Ellis Island was set up as an immigration center because there were so many. And Jews figured prominently in that group. Uh, in the Peak years of immigration, Jews represented 10% of all immigrants. So we're still not talking about huge numbers in the American population. But for the Jewish community, that was incredible. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in the 1990 survey, 
when Jews asked, were asked uh, where their ancestors came from, 95% of American Jews were the descendants of immigrants from Russia and Eastern Europe, Tsarist Russia and Eastern Europe, that came during that period. So in the 20th century, American Judaism was overwhelmingly the religion of immigrants from Tsarist Russia and Eastern Europe. Now, in the end of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st, that's less intense and a, a factor. For one thing, we are, we are several generations removed from those immigrants. For another thing, there have been more recent immigrants, uh, immigrations, the uh, Jews from Arab lands who had to flee and go to Israel uh, became successful economically in Israel, and at some point some of them came to the United States. Uh, so we have Jews from that tradition of, from the Arab lands that have come to the United States. We call them Mizrahi Jews in general, or Sephardi Jews. Uh, those are not synonyms. They're two different groups. Um, so we have those. We have some Israeli Jews amongst us. And then at the end of the 20th century, the Russian Jews that were left in, in the Soviet Union were permitted to leave. And many of them came to Israel, but many of them came to the United States as well. That's been the biggest new immigration uh, in recent uh, decades. But once again, they've uh, integrated into the Jewish community, so uh, we don't really make those distinctions so much. The earlier wave of immigration had to make their own way and invent their own institutions in America because there were no Jewish institutions for them to get absorbed into. But this latest wave has been small relative to the existing community, and we already have a lot of American Jewish institutions. So they've assimilated into the Jewish community rather than establishing uh, a new one. This issue of assimilation and immigration coming from different cultural traditions around the world plays an important role in what you call uh, defining the great tradition versus the small tradition of Judaism. So speak to that, if you will. Well, that's <clears throat> an interesting concept that I find very useful. Uh, every, every great religion has these different traditions. The great tradition is what defines the group as, it defines the religion. For Jews, that's the Torah, uh, the, the scriptures. The, basically, it's the five books of Moses, uh, and then it's, there's the prophets and the writings that all together make up the Holy Scriptures. And then there are later commentaries on it. Uh, the Talmud is a compilation of some of these later uh, commentaries and interpretations. The Mishnah is the, the oldest. And from the and the Gemara comments on the Mishnah, and then other commentators comment on the Gemara. But this is a a conversation over the centuries that uh, updates and reinterprets the 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 behavior of Jewish observance over the centuries. Uh, on the other hand, all of it is written in Hebrew. And that is the language of the great tradition, the synagogue services in Hebrew. So that's the great tradition. The Torah-based holidays, the holidays that are actually mentioned and described in the scriptures, are common to all Jews everywhere because the Torah is common to all Jews everywhere. So what are those holidays? Well, there's the Sabbath, of course. But there are uh, the New Year and Yom Kippur, both of which come in the fall, ten days apart are specified in Torah. Uh, then there are the three holidays in which at one time Jews went to the temple. There's Passover, there's uh, Shavuos, which in Christianity became Pentecost, and there is Sukkot, the Feast of Booths in the fall. And these holidays are, um, they are common to all Jews everywhere. Then there's some holidays that got added later, uh, that, uh, I mean, not late, but later, there's Hanukkah and Purim, uh, and those, Jew those 
uh, for most Jews, are part of the great tradition. But a few, like uh, the Ethiopians, uh, uh, they got separated from the Jewish community so far back in antiquity that they didn't know about these holidays. Uh, so so those, those, the, that's the great tradition. The small tradition really has to do with religious expression that are, is not shared by everyone everywhere. So in today's America and, and in today's Israel, we have three major s- small traditions. There's the Ashkenazi, which is the Yiddish-based tradition of, of Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Uh, there is the Sephardi tradition, which dates back to the uh, days when Jews, uh, Jewish culture flourished in Spain before 1492. And when the Jews were exiled from Spain, they took this Sephardi tradition with them. That is, the uh, language of that is Ladino. Then there is the Mizrahi tradition. The Mizrahi tradition dates back to the Babylonian exile. Before Roman times, uh, there has been a Jewish community in Babylon for uh, 2,500 years, 2,600 years, and well, until the present, until until Saddam Hussein. But there is that ancient Jewish community uh, had its uh, language was Judeo-Arabic, and they have their own traditions. Uh, and that sort of spread throughout the, uh, parts of the Arab world. Uh, and then when the Sephardi came later, so you have both of those traditions side by side in the, uh, in the Arab world, in what used to be the Ottoman Empire. So those are the big, small traditions in Judaism. Uh, and, but then there are older ones that we don't really practice today. For example, in in classical days, in the days of the Greeks and the Romans, they had, that was their own small tradition, and I, I guess you could call it the classical small tradition. That's where we get our Seder from at Passover time, from that tr- small tradition. Uh, there, and, and that's, they practice Judaism somewhat differently in Roman times than they do today. Uh, so the, the, it's, it's, um, they're, and they're little small traditions. They're the Chinese Jews. They're the Ethiopian Jews. There are Indian Jews that are not Sephardi or Mizrahi, but are, have their own thing. Um, you get the idea? Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier is when a number of German Jews came over at the turn of the century, they implemented something known as Reform Judaism, and they basically talked they did their services in the vernacular how does this small tradition work into the divisions of reform judaism conservative judaism and orthodox judaism that we see today well i guess when we're before we leave the topic of small traditions i should mention that i happen to think that um we are we have our roots, we Americans have our roots in these different small traditions, especially in the Ashkenazi, but we ourselves are not Ashkenazi. We don't speak Yiddish, and we don't observe Judaism the way our great-grandparents did in the old country. I think we are developing a new small tradition. There was a time when I wondered whether Israelis and Americans were developing two separate small traditions or one small tradition, but I think we're evolving into a single small tradition, um, and, and we're, it's still a work in progress. But the split into Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, and now there's Reconstructionist, and there's Post-Denominational, and there's, about, there's Jewish Renewal. There's a whole bunch of, of these different movements in the synagogues in America. Uh, and I think those are all part of the American tradition. Uh, and and that's the that's the Judaism in transition that I'm referring to in the title of my book that we are evolving our own small tradition in America. And the story about this relates to economics. 
you know, people can talk about it possibly in theological terms, but you of really course. approach this from an economic perspective. And that leads us to the next chapter of the book. And it will kind of get an idea of how small traditions are modified and changed over time because of various constraints that we have. The, the second chapter of the book that I'm talking about here is something called The Cost of Being Jewish in America. Now, a lot of people might be surprised by that title because they say, well, what do, what do you mean, the cost of being Jewish in America? I, we didn't think there was a separate tax on Jews in America. So what, what do we mean by the cost of being Jewish in America? Well, everybody always thinks of money right away when they say the cost. Because, and, and Jews complain that it's expensive to be Jewish because uh, we don't have a tax, but to, when, to join a synagogue you have to pay dues, and the dues have to cover the salary of the clergy, and they have to cover the building and the upkeep of the synagogue, and, so, and then they have to cover charitable activities and other activities. So in the end... You synagogue uh, membership is not cheap, but it's no more expensive than a week in Acapulco. Uh, then also the other thing that you have to spend money on is uh, school for your kids, Hebrew school, uh, uh, Jewish education, and that can sometimes that can be more expensive or less expensive depending on where you go and and what you. Uh, are looking for. But the real cost has to include the cost of your time. Uh, and when we economists talk about the cost, they talk about full price of something, and the full price is the money that you spend plus the value of the time that you spend. And the value of your time is very, very high. If you're an educated person in a professional occupation, your wage rate, which is the first approximation of the value of your time, uh, is very high. And it's definitely higher than the money cost. Uh, so if you spend three hours in the synagogue uh, on a Saturday morning and your billable hours in your law firm is $150 an hour, you can see that right away the cost of time is going to greatly overwhelm the uh, the um, money cost. Um, so, so that's one thing. But there's another way in which time is uh, costly, uh, even for people who don't work. If you have high income, uh, or in, including if somebody else is supporting you and you have a comfortable income, uh, you can afford to do a lot of different things with money. But the question then comes, how much time do you have to do those things? The more things you can afford to do, money-wise, the more constrained your time is because it has to be divided up between all the things that you want to do. So there's an income effect here, as we economists like to call it, that because just because you have more money, you never get more time. Your time becomes more valuable the higher your income and it's also more valuable the higher your wage rate. And if your income comes from high wages, you get a double whammy. Your time is very valuable. And that's going to be the binding constraint when you're making your economic choices. Uh, and that's the reason why uh, people find it difficult to go to the synagogue every week. It's not a one-hour event. It's all morning on Saturday. Now, some of us like to go to the synagogue for other reasons, and just like some people like spinach and other people don't. So we want to go to the synagogue, but it is very costly, so we spend less time. Three hours seems like a lot to us. So if you're only going to spend an, uh, two hours in the synagogue instead of three, and there's no flexibility in the service itself, the simple solution is to show up late. So instead of coming at 9 o'clock, you come at 10 o'clock. And some people come at 10.30 or 11 o'clock. And every rabbi knows that the synagogue is much emptier early in the service than it is at the end, because everybody's there at the end. So, uh, so that's one way you can save time. Another way you save time is by not going every week. Uh, so you go every, every once a month 
once every two months, uh, enough so that you feel that you're part of the community and that you experience the service, but not so much that you take away time from the other things you'd like to do on a Saturday morning. Being Jewish is more expensive than being Christian in our country because, well, it used to be when I was growing up because stores used to be closed on Sunday. So not being able to do your errands on Sunday meant you had to do them either on the Sabbath or on a day when you had lots of other things to do. So that was a costly uh, aspect of being Jewish. Being Jewish is costly if you observe the Jewish holidays. There are a number of Jewish holidays when you're not supposed to work. You observe them as though they were a Sabbath, and those are not holidays in the world at large. So if I take off from work for the first two days of Passover and the last two days of Passover, that's lost time in terms of work. And maybe there's a business meeting on a Saturday or on one of these holidays or and at the professional association meets. There are things that you can't do if you observe the holidays. So if that affects your ability to function in your profession, that's a cost. So these are the kinds of costs that really, really matter. And this is not even counting the cost imposed by anti-Semitism, if people really resent the fact that you're Jewish. Because I don't, I mean... That hasn't affected me much, but I think it affects everybody a little bit. And I, I can see how these costs uh, are affected in, in my own professional career because <clears throat> the University of Washington, we're on a quarter system, so we usually start in late September, and this usually coincides with some of the high holidays of uh, Judaism. And yeah. a, a lot of Jewish students might miss the first day or two of classes, which then puts them behind because you're talking about the syllabus and introducing the class, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so students are put in a bit of a bind saying, oh, do I really miss those first critical days of the class? Do, oh, not showing up. Yeah. And then for the faculty too, you're like, well, you know, I understand. I'm, I'm a Christian. I have my holiday, so I have to go out and adjust things for those students as well. So you can see how that is reflected. One of the things that you do in your book really well to reflect how these costs play out in an in individual, in individual's life is you tell a story about your own personal experience in choosing schooling for your kids when they were, when they were growing up. Explain that in yeah. the context of the cost of being Jewish. Well, uh, I grew up in a household where... Uh, and in a generation where public schooling was part of the tradition, part of the Jewish tradition for many of us. Uh, I think the theory was that people in the larger community had misperceptions about what Jews were like. There were all kinds of invidious stereotypes. Uh, I actually met people in college who were seeing Jews for the first time and surprised that we didn't have horns on our head. <laughs> uh, there are all kinds of misperceptions out there, and the feeling was that if Jews mixed with other people in the public schools, they would get to know that Jews are real people. And that was an important, that was an important motivation for public school, that and the fact that Jews always bought, almost always bought their houses in districts that had good schools. That was always an important criterion for, uh, for location. Uh, so I went to public school, and I expected my children to go to public school. My husband came from a, a different kind of community uh, where there were a lot of religious Jews. His family wasn't particularly... It was a, an, a section of Brooklyn where you were... There were a lot of Jews and... Some were very orthodox, and some were very not religious. <laughs> but if you had a Jewish school nearby, you took advantage of it, and you sent your kid to a Jewish school. And as it happened, totally by coincidence, uh, we had uh, bought a house in a neighborhood that was only three miles from a conservative day school that did have a good reputation, although when I was talking to parents about which school to choose, it was interesting. The ones who sent their children there raved about it, 
And the ones who didn't had all kinds of horror stories about why they would never send their children there. So we had a bit, I mean, clearly this was an ideological divide, and uh, we had some words of, about it in our family. And I ended up agreeing that we would send our kid to kindergarten and maybe first grade as a trial, and we would see how it worked out, whether it was a good school or not. And it was a wonderful school. <laughs> so I became one of the parents who sent my kids there and raved about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. This this becomes an issue, though, later on, because the school only goes up to a certain grade level, and then That's there's a transition right. to public school. And this leads to this other interesting story about, well, you got one kid in, in Hebrew school, essentially, and one kid in public school, and it creates this time conflict, these, this yeah, time constraint that you're talking about. Different. Actually, let me just sort of digress for a moment. It was interesting. Uh, I had a conversation with the children after they were children uh, later, reflecting on their high school experience. Going from a small private school to a very large high school, public high school, it was extremely large. There were like 3,500 students in the public high school uh, uh, so it was a freshman class of about a thousand, as distinct from a class of thirty, in the uh, school that they had come from. It was a bit of a culture shock for them, uh, and it was also the first time they'd gone to school with non-Jews and with people of different races and ethnicities. So it was a big experience for them, uh, and they adjusted. They it worked out okay, and they had a good high school experience. And then they went to college, and there were other children who had gone straight through the private schools the whole way and went to college. And what my children told me is that making that transition from an all-Jewish environment into a multicultural environment, into a, from a small to a large, uh, while they were in high school, meant they were still living with their parents, and there was a stability there that the children who, didn't, who made that transition when they went away to college didn't have. So I thought that was an interesting insight into the public-private uh, discussion. One of the other things that comes up in your book is this concept of human capital, and this relates to the educational experiences that you went through as well, because there are a lot of parents who live in a very religious household, a very religious Jewish household, and want to retain the religiosity. But as a minority in a a broader Christian community, it's oftentimes difficult to do that. Explain to us what the concept of human capital is, and then how this specifically affects Jews in the economic choices about schooling and other things that they have to make. Human capital is all of the attributes that you have that make you you that you were not born with. Uh, These things happen through a process called investment. The obvious example is your education. You learn to read and write. That's an investment. Nobody likes to learn to read and write, but you like to be able to read and write. So uh, education is an investment in human capital, and once you've made that investment, it's yours. It's inalienable from you. It's embodied in you, and nobody can take it away from you. You can lose it because any kind of capital can depreciate if you don't use it. But other people can't take away from you once it's yours. And that's what human capital is. Now, education is the kind that we usually talk about as economists because we're interested in how you prepare for the world of work and how you pre- and there's what you learn in school, that's what you learn in apprenticeships, and there's what you learn on, in training courses on the job. But there are other ways in which we get human capital as well. And when you're talking about, and language is a big one. Anybody watching a child learn how to talk uh, knows that language is an investment that requires a great deal of effort on the child's part and on the parent's part, uh, and they work at it. Uh, when you're talking about religion, you, you have other ways in which you educate somebody. Uh, and one way is just by making happy memories that are associated with the religious observance. So 
if you remember your mother lighting the Sabbath candles every Friday night, that becomes a part of you. That memory becomes a part of you, and that's something that you treasure and you want to preserve, and when you grow up, you will want to light the candles yourself. Uh, you remember celebrating holidays, and, and so that's important. But you also have other kinds of, of memories and learning experiences. You see how your parents treat each other. You see how they treat their parents. You see how they care for the strangers, the neighbors. And these patterns of behavior are patterns that you uh, absorb sometimes without even realizing it, but these are part of the religious tradition of your community that become a part of you. So all of these are ways in which we accumulate human capital. Uh, for Jews or any minority, there sometimes can be a conflict. Learn from your parents and your home and what you learn from the larger community that you live in. Uh, when I was growing up in America, Christmas was a big deal, a public big deal. And I, in school, learned all the Christmas carols that other people sang in church. So in addition to my Jewish human capital, I had a certain amount of Christian human capital. And my parents and teachers in, in the Jewish school had to help me understand that this was a tradition of another religion and not my own. Uh, so you have, to, you have to deal with that when you're teaching children. I, I mentioned Christmas because the December dilemma is famous. Uh, er, many Jewish children want to be Christian during the month of December because it's such a glitzy, exciting uh, holiday for a young child. Uh, and the, a Christmas tree is a very appealing uh, object. And so you have to explain that this is Christian and that we are not Christian, and then you have to unlearn that. But there are many things in the Jewish tradition which are actually very uh, hospitable to American uh, teachings, and that's uh, democracy, freedom, individual rights, even education. Uh, we do very well as a group in the United States because... American culture and American social life is very compatible with Jewish religious teachings. Some of it is because it's a Christian world, and Christianity has many aspects of it that are compatible with Judaism. And some of it is the particular way in which America is a Christian world, the, de the democracy, uh, the to the understanding that other people can have a religion that's theirs. That's really important, and it's, it's not something that every country shares. One of the interesting aspects of this whole development of human capital as a minority group within a broader majority Christian culture is how institutions have been designed to help preserve some of this human capital. And one of the uh, parts I loved about your book was a discussion about summer camps and these excursions to Israel, Israeli, I guess, summer camps, yeah. so to speak. Tell us how this factors into everything. Yeah, like one of my, one of my camp mates when I was a teenager used to refer to Israel as that great Hebrew school across the sea. <laughs> Well, you know, education has to be age-appropriate for the child. Mm -hmm. So when a child is young, you can have holidays and dress-ups and costumes and candles, and that's all very exciting. But when a child gets to be older, youth, uh, then we prepare them for a bar mitzvah ceremony at the, on the, near their 13th birthday. They're ready to study more serious things and to learn more serious things. But then when they get to be high school age, it's really hard to teach them anything, partly because of their development stage, they're separating from their parents, and partly because uh, they have so many other opportunities, things to do. So one of the, uh, and, we, and we don't want to deny our children the opportunity to play. We don't want to make their life all school. So one of the things that's developed is this summer camp idea 
which it started back 100 years ago when uh, Jews were crowded into slums in New York City. And in the summer months, New York City was not a healthy place to be because of disease, uh, polio and uh, other diseases that would be epidemic in the summertime. Uh, and so the Jews would go to the country. That's, the Catskills had a, uh, mountains had a number of Jewish farmers, uh, and they would take in borders for the summer, and then eventually that became the resorts that we refer to as the Borscht Belt, the Catskill Resorts. So it became common for people to go to the seashore or to the mountains in the summertime. Uh, now with air conditioning and public health and preventive medicine, we don't have that same motivation, but it turns out that vacations in the summertime are really fun. And the kids go to summer camp, uh, and Jewish summer camps are camps where uh, the environment is Jewish. It's not that all the kids have to be Jewish, although they usually are, but you observe something on the, the Sabbath on a Saturday. Even if you're not a religious camp, uh, you still observe Saturday as a day different from all other days. Uh, it's a special day. And there are some holidays that come during the summer that some camps observe and some don't. But they have the, just the usual summer camping activities. It's particularly important for the children who are growing up in communities where they are the only Jews or where there are very few Jews. Because this is the only time that they get to be around, in an environment where they are not a minority. They're not alone. They're part of the group. They're in-group. And that's very important for children. Uh, and I'm talking about a anybody over the age of 10 and under the age of 18. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's one of the functions of the summer camp. And of course, some camps are language camps where you speak Hebrew all the time so that you learn Hebrew. Some are religious camps. Uh, some are sports camps. I, it, it varies. There, there are many different camps to choose from. Usually your parents make the choice, but they make it with your particular interests in mind. This leads uh, us to uh, an issue that, I mean, we were talking about sending the kids to camp. They're learning Hebrew. They want to preserve some of their religious human capital. And in some of these places, these kids are, are minorities growing up, but they get the majority um, experience yeah, at the yeah. summer camp. It, it leads to a bigger issue that affects potentially the future of Judaism in America, which I really like this aspect of your book. And that in part relates to intermarriage and um, wither Judaism. I mean, this is a, one of the chapters in your book is that you, you're a minority community that is expanding throughout the country, living in different cities. You have to find a mate. There's economics of, of mating and of marriage markets, etc. Um, how does the Jewish community deal with this issue of intermarriage, preserving their cultural identity, and how does this affect small tradition in various ways? Well, that's a tough question. It's one that the community is wrestling with. Um, the First of all, let's make it very clear. Intermarriage is never, no, is usually not a bad thing at all for the person who's doing it. That you do it because you find a life partner that you want to, to be with. And it's a, it's a positive step in your life, just like any marriage is. So it's not as though the person who's intermarrying is suffering in any way. What's suffering is the community if the children of adult Jews are not going to be raised as Jews. So then the, that implies that the community will shrink. Uh, we have a birth rate, which is about two children per family. It's a little less than two children per family for uh, married couples for Jewish couples, but uh, a lot of Jewish women are not getting married and remaining single. 
so the uh, fertility rate for the community as a whole is less than two, which means that just from natural fertility growth, the community is shrinking. But intermarriage is a leakage, right? Because I mean, most intermarriages, even when the children are raised in both traditions, do not produce children. Uh, that producing is the wrong word here. And do not uh, result in children who grow up to be observant Jews. So, uh, and that's another part of the controversy. You know, if you have a mixed marriage of Christian and Jewish, uh, will the children be raised as Jews? Uh, it, it's difficult uh, because even if even if the couple decides to raise their children as Jews. They still have non-Jewish grandparents as well as Jewish grandparents. They live in a community which is, has many Christian influences, and uh, they're not insulated from any of these influences. So it's just a tricky question for the community as a whole. It's even trickier for the community if the Jewish partner, even the Jewish partner whose own upbringing was Jewish, uh, is not particularly religiously observant. Now, some of it is the spinach argument. There are people who don't like spinach, so they just choose not to eat it. So there are people who don't like religion or don't want religion in their lives, so they choose not to raise their children Jewish. But <clears throat> the children who are raised uh, with a perfunctory Jewish education and don't have much Jewish human capital and don't have much interest in Judaism are the ones most likely to marry non-Jews because there's no reason not to, especially if the non-Jews are not particularly interested in their own religion. Uh, and then they will raise their children in a household that will say, well, I'm half Jewish, I'm half Protestant, whatever, but the household itself does not have much religious observance, and so they're not likely to feel a strong attachment to any religion. And sometimes when the children from that kind of marriage grow up, they are seekers, and they seek a religion that will suit them. Uh, and uh, Sometimes those who choose Jews are more likely to become ultra-Orthodox, uh, but, but they're also missionaries, and they're, they're groups of Christians that are made up uh, that attract uh, children who were brought up without religion. Uh, but with, for the Jewish community, one of the things that this implies is that the number of Jews is shrinking. At its peak, when it was the largest, Jews made up about a little less than 2.5% of the American population. Now they're down to 15 to 2%, depending on how you count, and I think it's probably going to shrink even further before it stabilizes. Uh, on the other hand, within the Jewish community itself, those who say, my religion is Judaism, those people who get married tend to have two children uh, on average. <coughs> Excuse me. So the community is stabilizing in terms of numbers for those who get married. That whole issue of marriage is interesting because in your book you find a new category of individuals here and you talk about the demographics of the Jewish population changing. It used to be a pyramid type of structure and now it's more cylindrical. Yes. And there's this new category, which is also true in, in Christian uh, culture as well, of these young singles. It, it used to be that people get married well, about 18, 19, or 20, but now that is really stretching itself out into the late 20s, into the early 30s. How is this affecting the community? People who, uh, when your community is highly educated, people don't finish school until their mid-20s or late 20s. And so they're not ready to get married until after that. Now, some people get married before they finish school, but the way it's working out, they're more likely to live together than they are to get married until they have finished school and started careers. Uh, that means that instead of getting married uh, three or four years after your bar mitzvah or after your high school, you get married 13 years after your bar mitzvah. So you spend 13 years in your parent. Well, let's say you spend 
18 years in your parents' home uh, as children, so to speak, and then another dozen years at least after you've left your parents' home in which you are adult singles. And even when couples get married, they still lead that adult single lifestyle in many respects until they start to have children. Then they become parents themselves for another 18 years, and then uh, their children leave home. Now, when your children leave home, you don't just disappear, right? You become an empty nester, is what we call them. Empty nesters are adults, whose ch- grown-ups whose children have left home, but they don't have, they, de- they are not yet in-laws, <laughs> and they're not yet grandparents. So we have empty nesters that make up a group that your, your life cycle stage as an empty nester is about as long as your children's life cycle stage as adult singles. And then you become a grandparent when you're a senior, and seniors are living longer and healthier than they used to. And so I think, I think in terms of a population cylinder where uh, – you have about the same number as parents as children. You have about the same number as empty nesters as young singles. And then you have your grandparents, who are the, the elders of the community, the seniors who are living longer, and probably about the same number of people in that category as well. So it is a population cylinder with five stages instead of a population pyramid with three stages. Now, that, we're getting used to that in our social life. I, I mean, it's fun. I can tell you from experience, it's fun to be an empty nester. But on the other hand, it's also fun to be a grandparent. So you can enjoy being an empty nester for a while, but it's not like in the old days in my generation where once you got married, your parents started nagging. Well, actually, before you got married, your parents would nag you to get married and have children so they could be grandparents. But now, empty nesters are enjoying themselves. They're not in any rush for their children to get married, but they expect their children to get married, and they expect to live long enough to enjoy grandchildren. And we have not yet adapted our religious roles to be compatible with this social structure. Uh, we're, so there are some movements in that direction, but it ha- hasn't been done yet, and in particular in the Jewish community, Adult singles really don't feel comfortable in the synagogue life. Uh, they feel like they're not welcome. They often say they feel like they're not welcome. Or they're not, you know, most synagogue members don't feel that way about them. But they feel there's no constructive role for them in the ritual life of the synagogue that's appropriate. They, they feel they ought to be married and have children if they're going to be in the synagogue. And that's not a that's not a good feeling, and it it's alienating. So that's a problem. Another aspect of this that uh, has it religious implications. What we found in a previous generation is even people who were not observant as adult singles would sort of rediscover religious impulses and and start paying attention to uh, the synagogue life at two points in their own lives. One is the point where they become parents. Uh, the birth of a child is such a miracle that it, is, it gives everybody pause and often stimulates a religious impulse, and then you have to worry about your Jewish upbringing of your children. And the other time is when your parent dies. When a parent dies, it's very emotional in a way that most people don't anticipate. Uh, and it often stimulates a religious impulse. Uh, the thing is that it's one thing if you have the birth of a child when you're in your mid-20s. It's another thing if you have the, don't have the birth of your child until you're in, the, you're in your mid-30s because you're a more established person in other ways by then. Similarly, it's one thing if your parent dies when you're in your 40s and have children of your own. And it's another thing entirely if you're 60 before your parents die. So the 
way in which you react to these important life milestones is different depending on your age at that time. And so we can't really, with the population cylinder model, we can't really depend on these events to stimulate religious observance. And that's another thing that the, the rabbinate is paying attention to sometimes. And when I, when I talk about this to the clergy, uh, they say, yes, we've been thinking about that. But I don't know if a particular uh, response has crystallized. And one of the things that I find fascinating <clears throat> about your book is that as the rabbinate thinks about this, they can think about it in theological terms, but what you bring to the table are these economic insights of, you know, there's time trade-offs, and obviously as people become more educated, the time uh, that they have for children at various points in the life cycle changes, and so you see people getting married later, and this is going to impact whether they come to synagogue in their late 20s, early 30s, and it might be affecting small tradition. All of this stuff tends to, yes. to weave together. Yes. The, what's interesting, is, well, Jews have been really, really lucky at having a leadership, a religious leadership, with great insights. One thinks of people like um, Mordecai Kaplan, uh, by Rabbi Meyer, by Solomon Schechter, these, and, and, and by uh, Menachem Schneerson. These are people who are theologians, philosophers, who, think, who see the problems and think through and come up with creative solutions. But whether the solutions work or not, whether, whether they fly, will depend on the price that people have to pay to follow them. Uh, it will work for some people more than others, so that people have, you know, make different choices in religious life. But there are many, many innovations in American Judaism, uh, especially in the early, late 19th, early 20th century, that have not worked. Uh, whether it works or not will depend on whether people adopt them and whether it resonates with, the, uh, with ordinary people. And prices, income, and human capital are concepts that are helpful for predicting whether uh, these things will resonate with the general population. And this is what uh, makes your book, Judaism in Transition, all the more valuable, not only for the person who's interested in the economics of religion or interested in getting a, a very cursory introduction to Judaism here, but also, I think, for the rabbinate to think through how their institution, their religious institutions, are changing and how to adapt to those changes. Yes, that's what I'm hoping. My guest today has been Carmel Chiswick. Carmel, thank you for being on Research on Religion. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Research on Religion. To learn more about today's topic, participate in a discussion about what you've heard, or browse other podcasts, please visit our website at www.researchonreligion.org. And if you like what we're doing, please tell a friend. We'd appreciate the company. See you next week.